0: We celebrated the resurrection of our Savior last week, Easter, millions of people did all around the world, Uh, but just as surely as we celebrated the the reality of the resurrection, there are also millions of people all around the world and have been in every age for every century that completely doubt that reality, that don't accept it as reality, Uh, that actually uh, believe that there were all sorts of conspiracy theories that actually answer and, and show uh, that the resurrection did not occur. There, there have always been skeptics and always have been conspiracy theorists. Uh, it happened from the very beginning and it's happened all the way through until now. Uh, that's just a fact of life in which we live. And you probably have heard some of these theories, these conspiracy theories throughout the years, uh, at least one or two of them. But uh, the most common ones um, really are the swoon theory, the theft theory, and the hallucination theory. Uh, Those are the three most common conspiracy theories. They're very much active and alive today, uh, but they certainly are not new. They've been around for many, many centuries. In some cases, uh, all the way back to when the resurrection actually occurred. Uh, The swoon theory... Is the theory uh, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, that because of his dehydration, because of his shock from all that he had gone through, from his torture and everything, from um, all that had been done to him even before the cross and while on the cross, that he simply just passed out. And so they, they took him down from the cross alive but unconscious. And so, never mind the fact that, you know, a, a spear. Stuck him in the side. It just wasn't enough to kill him, I guess. Uh, And then when when they put him in the tomb, which they really did according to this theory, the dampness and coolness of the tomb just amazingly revived him. And then in the dark... Because obviously, you know, he's not God according to this theory, because he, you know, anyway, uh, in the dark, he stumbles around and and somehow he finds the huge stone and rolls it aside himself and just walks right on out. That's that's that theory. Yeah, holds a lot of weight, right? Um, but yet, people subscribe to it. Then the theft theory. This is definitely what originated at the very beginning. Uh, if you've read the Gospels and are familiar with that at all, you remember that the uh, scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, conspired with the Roman guards to say, you need to just tell people, when, when the resurrection happened, you need to tell people that his disciples came and took the body away, that you, you fell asleep. On the job, we know this is going to risk your life because we know that the the practice is if you fall asleep on the job, your life is forfeit, you're executed. But hey, don't worry, we'll stick up for you. And here's a little money to sweeten the deal. So you tell people that while you were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body away. Never mind when people ask you, well, how do you know they stole the body if you were asleep? We'll, We'll figure that out as we go. But you just tell people that. And so they did. And... Amazingly, that didn't get completely shut out and it's, it's been propagated ever since. The theft theory. Then there's the hallucination theory, which is that everyone that claims to have seen the resurrected Christ, everyone that gave testimony to the fact that it actually happened, just suffered from mass hallucination. That everybody, I mean the, the over 500 people, That we know said to everyone around them, we've seen Jesus. He actually is alive. That all of those people, including the original disciples and his mother and everyone else, that they just suffered from mass hallucination due to sadness and, you know, the, the weight of their grief and being tired and up a long time and all of that. It just played tricks on their mind. And they're even willing to admit that those people. Think that they really saw the resurrected Christ. That that to them it was real, to them it was an absolute reality, but it it wasn't in fact reality. It was just all hallucination and wishful thinking. So uh, that is that's the, the main, the most common you know theories surrounding the cynics of the resurrection. People who who say, no, it really didn't happen, it couldn't have happened, and here's some explanations uh, that are alternative to to the facts and to truth. (sighs) Sad, isn't it? Sad. And these theories, and these and others with them, uh, were so common and so prevalent and so pervasive, especially in the first century, right when the resurrection of Christ actually did occur, that it prompted the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, to address this. Because even though he planted this church, and even though people had received the gospel, uh, the Corinthian church, particularly, was highly influenced and impacted by Greek philosophy, the Greek culture around it. And within this church, even some believers... We're starting to question whether or not the resurrection actually occurred. Did it really happen? Was that reality? Even though they had heard the message preached, even though they had accepted it and believed it, there were others coming in and saying, well, no, hold on a second, let's think about this. Did it really happen? And so there was confusion and there was division. And so Paul wrote to address that. And so today's message is called, What If? What Now? What if the cynics and the skeptics are right? What if the resurrection of Christ that we just celebrated and that others have for literally now thousands of years really didn't happen? What would the implications of that be? Well, Paul addresses that. And we're also going to ask what now? If it did really occur, if the resurrection is reality, and here's a clue, it did. It is. Since it happened... The question that we have to ask is, what now? How does that impact not just eternity, but our lives right here and now? So that's where we're going this morning, and um, the Apostle Paul addresses both of those things. So first, we're going to ask the question, as he did, and as others were asking, what if? What if it really didn't happen? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. This is the what-if part, okay, concerning Christ's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Here's what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed by witnesses, by the apostles themselves, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? Of the dead, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, he's saying, okay I'll, I'll go with you a little bit on this let's explore that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised okay that that's pretty easy logic to follow just right there on that here's the implications though verse fourteen if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain. It's empty. It's useless. It doesn't have any power. Because all that Paul and Peter and James and all the apostles and the early leaders of the church, everything they preached came back to the reality of the resurrection. That is what really launched the church. The whole movement of the church. The way... That was, you know, that's the term that early Christianity was given—the way and the church, the thing that made that work, the the thing that propelled it forward, the thing that caused over three thousand people in one day on the day of Pentecost to come to Christ to be part of the church, the thing that helped them withstand opposition and persecution and discouragement and doubt. It was all the resurrection, Amen. the hope and the reality and the power of it. That was what was contained in all the preaching. So, Paul is saying, well, if that didn't happen, then all of our preaching, no matter how good it might be, no matter how much you might get out of it and be encouraged by it, it ultimately is all in vain. And consequently then, he goes on, and your faith is in vain. The faith that you have in what we Proclaim to you the faith in the preaching that you've been under, the message that you've received, the gospel. Because the gospel, at its very heart, church, is Christ crucified and risen. That's the gospel. And so even the faith that that his hearers and his listeners, and this includes to today, when someone hears the gospel when they hear the truth of Christ, His person, His work, proclaimed to them, and they say, yes, I believe that, I need that, I receive that, if Christ isn't raised, then all of that is, is empty, useless, lacking relevance, and lacking power, lacking anything to sustain. And then verse 15, he continues, we are even found to be misrepresenting god because we testified about god that he raised christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised in other words we're not the only ones lying god's lying too not only can you not believe and trust in what we have to say if christ isn't really risen you can't really trust and believe in god and then that calls into question is he really god at all Verse sixteen: For if the dead are not raised, here's his repetition that's typical of Paul. This is his style. He repeats and repeats and goes back and, and uh, gives great emphasis to, to things he really is uh, wanting to make sure people understand and, and gets the significance of. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still raised. In your sins. And it's not just about you, Paul is getting ready to say. And for us, it's not just about us. It's not just about ones who are living right now and who have put faith in Christ that are getting a really bad deal if all this is, is true, that Christ is not raised. If if Christ really hasn't risen It's not just those that are currently, actively, presently putting faith in Christ that lose. Look at what he says. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, all those who have placed their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, like you have, and they died. They died believing that Christ is their Savior, their whole hope for an eternity beyond death that's wrapped up in Christ that they received. They've died believing a lie. And the promise that they would not perish but have everlasting life, that promise that's given to all believers, that promise that helps believers face death with strength and with grace, and with purpose and with peace, not really there. And so they actually died truly perishing eternally. You see the significance of all of this? You see how important this this really is? then he says probably the most significant statement of all this, this passage. Verse 19. If in this Life only. We have hoped in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because if Christ isn't risen, it's all a really cruel cosmic joke. See, without... The empty tomb. The cross is empty of all effectiveness. Without the empty tomb, the cross is empty of all effectiveness. As important as the cross of Christ was and is, as necessary as that was and is, as worthy of lifting it up and exalting it and celebrating as it is, if everything ended at the cross, then none of it really mattered. Because it didn't have the power necessary to save us and to redeem us and to justify us before a righteous holy God. We talked about that last week. That when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, paid in full. Remember, we talked about that that the, the only thing that really made that true, that made His work finished and acceptable to God, the only reason it was truly paid in full was because of the resurrection, because of the empty tomb, because of what happened three days later. Because the resurrection, Christ coming out of the grave, was God the Father's, amen, and accepted to the Son's statement on the cross, it is finished. And without the empty tomb, the work truly would not have been finished. There there would not have been payment in full. The resurrection is what vindicated and validated and proved that the work of Christ was sufficient and was efficient for all of eternity. Without the resurrection of Christ, the cross of Christ is reduced to a powerless Symbol and ultimately a meaningless gesture, because that would mean that Christ's sacrifice it wasn't really accepted by the Father, and it wasn't really enough, and therefore it lacked the power necessary to to pay for our sin debt and to, to secure our relationship with God as Father, instead of knowing Him only as Judge. That's why Paul could say here, we are of all people most to be pitied if it didn't really happen. Because literally everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. So if it didn't happen, then we have based our entire life as Christians and our entire eternal destiny on a broken rusty hinge that can't hold any weight. Think about what it is to be a Christian. It's to hope in eternal life. It's to hope in the reality of life far beyond and far above death and the grave. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's about having hope for the here and now. It's about finding purpose in this life. It's about knowing joy and true contentment and peace in the midst of horrible circumstances because let's face it life is hard life can be ugly life can be horrible life is is very often not a nice quiet lake it's like rapids it's like ocean all messed up and in turmoil with a hurricane that's usually how life works that's usually the experience of life and what a relationship with Christ does for you as a Christian is it gives you stability in all of that. It gives you a reason to keep going. It gives you endurance. It gives you strength and power beyond yourself that no one else can provide you. It gives you satisfaction and fulfillment that you can't find in anything or anyone. But as great as, as the Christian life is, and it's great, it really is, As great as it is, let's also admit something together. It also is hard. Right? It's challenging. It's work. Jesus said to those that would follow him, he said, If you want to be my disciple, good, I I want you to, but here's what you need to do. You have to take up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow me. In other words, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to die to the way you want to live. You've got to die to your agenda, your preferences. You've got to die to making everything all about you. If you really want to come after me and be my follower. He said this in the world, you, my followers, are going to have tribulation, hardship. It's not a matter of, oh, this might happen, and, and if it does, you might want to be prepared. He said, you're going to. It's a fact. Peter said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, you know, it's not all a bed of roses. It's, it's hard, it's tough. And then, that, that's all kind of like external pressure and external circumstance. Then there's the internal struggle that we have as Christians, as believers, that are still in this flesh, the skin, which is prone to sin, always. And we, we have to battle and wage war against the flesh. We have to struggle against the inner turmoil that is in us as, as being human beings, the inner sinful nature that's still there. Paul, the apostle, at the, at the later stages of his life and ministry, in Romans 7, gave us this, this incredible, very accurate picture of that struggle. When he said, what a wretched man I am. This is, this is old Paul now, who's lived his life for Christ, accomplishing great things for Christ, planting churches, writing a significant portion of the New Testament. And he said, what a wretched man I am. For the things I want to do, the right things, righteousness, serving and loving and living for Christ, all the good things I want to do and know I should do, I don't do them. Instead, I end up choosing and doing the very thing I hate to do as a Christian. The, the sinful choices, the selfish living, unrighteousness, all that I should hate and do hate as a Christian, I still end up finding myself doing them again and again and again. And there's this cycle. I want to do good, but I don't do it. I hate to do evil, but I still do it anyway. And he describes what it is to be a Christian not home yet which is true of all of us. So it's hard. It's not just easy. It's good. And it's, it's the best decision that anyone could make. It's the decision everybody needs to make. It's the only true source of life and the only access to life. Making a commitment for Christ. That's all true. But that does not mean that it's all just easy. And here's my point in all that. Here's why I'm saying that. It's coming back to what Paul just said about if Christ is not risen, then we are of all people to be most pitied if only in this life we've hoped in Christ. If it doesn't go beyond this life and the mess that we know to be life, real everyday life, if, if our faith in Christ and our hope in Him is only as good as our life and our physical breath here on earth, then yeah, we're of all people to be most pitied. Because, number one, we've believed a really, really big lie that there's more beyond this, and so we've hoped in vain. But more than that, we have sacrificed, if we're truly walking in Christ as we should be, we have sacrificed and we've said no to self uselessly, needlessly. We might as well have been like everyone else out in the world to just live for ourselves, go after all that we want, do what we want, when we want, not to be held accountable to any higher standard. We might as well have just done that. We might as well have just given up on fighting self and fighting sin. There was no point to strive for righteousness. There was no point to say no to the higher paying job so that you could actually just minister and serve others because money wasn't important to you. It should have been. You might as well have not said no to all of your fleshly, carnal passions. Just indulge the flesh if there's no hope in Christ beyond the here and now. And on and on you could go, but you get the point. It's not just that our hope in the afterlife was in vain. That's enough to be pitied. But it's also the life that we've chosen to live and the endurance that we've chosen to have and that struggle day in and day out as a, as a Christian who's still living in this life was all worthless. It was all pointless. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's right. We are of all people most to be pitied. <sighs> Thankfully, though, Thankfully, that isn't what we have to worry about. All of that what if, what if he didn't rise, what if this is true and what if this is true because he didn't come back from the dead, what if there is no resurrection and here's all the implications of that, if there isn't, we don't need to worry about that. What if is irrelevant because what happened was that he did, indeed, rise again. Jesus is alive. The grave is empty. We serve and know and can live for a risen, reigning, ruling, returning Christ. That's the reality. And Paul doesn't leave it on the what if. He addresses that, he answers it, and he says, because that's not relevant, let's talk about what now. 1 Corinthians 15, so in the same chapter... Verses 20 through 22. He says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die... So, also in Christ shall all be made alive. My friends, because of Christ's resurrection, because it was a reality and it is a reality, death is simply the door to never ending life for anyone that trusts in Him. That's That's the first part of the the awesome reality and the great impact of that reality that Christ has in fact been raised. The first significant impact of that is that death doesn't hold us because it didn't hold him. And if we are in Christ, whom death did not hold, we can be assured that that same Victory over death is ours because He extends it to us. He gives it to all who are in Him. So if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you've committed your life to Him, then death, when you face it, as we all will, is simply the doorway through which you step into never-ending life. And that is why we can hope in death. That is why... For all believers, death does not have the final word because it didn't have the final word for your Savior. That's why when you say goodbye to your loved one, as horrible as that is, as hard as that is, as much as that hurts, as much as that wound never fully heals, trust me, I know, as hard as that is, it's, it's never really a permanent goodbye if they are in Christ and you are in Christ. It's a temporary separation. And by the time you catch up to them into the eternity they've already been enjoying, it will be as if no time passed at all. And it's only possible. And it's only a reality because of the reality of the resurrection. But, but, there's more. See, the second part of the reality of Christ's resurrection, the second major impact is that it's not just for then that the resurrection provides relevance and power it's also right here and right now the impact of Christ's resurrection isn't limited to the sweet by and by its power is also available for the nasty now and now <laughs> it's true that's the reality of the resurrection. We don't have to just wait till death finds us to really experience and and enjoy the power of the resurrection and to find it applicable. We can and we should find it relevant and impacting and applicable right here and now as we live life. Particularly, Particularly, this is found in our struggle against sin, which I just talked about a few minutes ago, that we all have, that we all identify with. The resurrection power of Christ is available to us in our struggle against sin. I want you to to consider Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 9 through 11. Paul says this, Romans 6 verse 9, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, here's the application. It makes it personal, okay? So you also, you believers in Christ, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, the resurrection power of Christ has an impact, has an intended impact and effect on our struggle against sin. We have that power available to us. Here's what Romans chapter 8 says, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which He does, if you're a true believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, listen to this, don't miss this, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Resurrection power. You don't have to struggle alone. And you can't. There's no hope of victory. There's no hope of overcoming anything on your own. The struggle's too great for us. That's why, through the Holy Spirit, we have the availability to tap into power much greater than ours and to apply that to every single struggle, not just sin. We can apply that to our discouragement, and we can apply that to times of depression, and we can apply that to our anxiety, we can apply it to our weakness, we can apply it to to every aspect of our life, and we should. That's why the Spirit dwells in us. To apply that resurrection power, that new life, constantly flowing through every part of us. And not only do we have the indwelling power of the Spirit but we also have access to help from our risen, reigning, ruling Savior. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, verses 23 through 25. Hebrews seven twenty-three through 25. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. The former priests, going all the way back to the, to the Levitical priesthood, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Well, that's, that's obvious, right? They died, another one had to come and take their place. But he, contrasting with Jesus, looking at Jesus, that's the he that's being referred to, but he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, as a result of that, He is able to save to the uttermost. To save completely, definitely, entirely those who draw near to God through Him. Remember, He is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. So all who draw near to God through Him, through Jesus, He is able to save completely, eternally, to the uttermost. Why? It tells us, since... He always lives to make intercession for them. My fellow believer in Christ, not only do you have the resurrection power of Christ available to you in the Spirit of God dwelling in you, but you have Christ Himself standing at the right hand of the Father, pleading your case, interceding for you, praying for you. As you struggle here in this life on earth. And what he is praying for you, among other things I'm sure, is, Oh Father, help them to give themselves over to the power of your Spirit. And as they do that, may they experience my resurrection life and power flowing through them. I really believe that is mainly what he is praying for, among other things, no doubt. But regardless of what he is actually praying, maybe we'll never know. We certainly won't know until we come to meet him. Regardless of that, that doesn't really matter the specifics, does it? Just knowing that we have the resurrected Savior interceding for us. Wow! Wow! So we have help in our struggle against sin. we have the ability to know the resurrection power of Christ. What all that means for us is this. Christ's resurrection and the reality of it gives us the power to hope in death and to thrive in life. Christ's resurrection gives us the power to hope in death and to thrive in life through His Spirit and through knowing He is interceding for us as well. Isn't that really, really good news today. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of it, the impact of it. And I pray if there is anyone here that has not stepped into that, experienced that for themselves, if they don't personally know the resurrection life and the resurrection power of Christ that's available to them. May today be that day. May may this be the moment of their true salvation and their, their true resurrection. Because when we come to Christ, when we receive Him as our own Savior and our Lord, it's not just a philosophical or theological belief. It's a change in our life. It's a resurrection from the dead. May that be experienced by everyone here This day, for all who have not yet done so, for those of us who have, please help us to believe and to remember and to recall what is our reality in and through Christ. That the reality of His resurrection is not just a historical fact or a far-off future hope. That it's meant to give us power in the here and the now. Help us to grab onto that. Help us to use it, I pray, all for Your glory.